0: All righty. The Midwife Crisis podcast will touch on sensitive topics regarding the human body, sexuality, pregnancy, and all aspects of women's health care and may not be suitable for all listeners. I'm Kate. And I'm PR.
1: And this is season two of the Midwife Crisis, because it's not just you. Over the long break, thanks COVID, (laughs) she always says that we continue to receive some incredible emails from our listeners and we are very thankful. We are so happy that you continue to listen, even though we weren't putting out new material. One email really touched us and is serving as the inspiration for our full episode today. As always, we're keeping the listener anonymous because we didn't get permission ahead of time which we will continue to do when you send us emails unless you give us permission. So if you want a shout out, you can just, you can even use a fake name if you want. Spoiler alert, trigger warning. This episode will address birth trauma. And so if you have a history of this trauma, we just ask that you be mindful.
0: Okay. So our email reads, hey, PR and Kate, I was wondering if you'd talk about birth trauma. I had a scheduled C section that went wrong. I was in triage, had lost my mucus plug when I went to change into the hospital gown, and was going through the intake process of answering the nurse's questions and getting my IV. I passed out when they were putting the IV in my arm, and my son's heart rate dropped. It slowly stabilized and then dropped again. They threw a gown on my husband, put a mask on me, and wheeled me to the OR. I've always had a fear of being cut open, so I was already terrified of having a C-section. My husband came in after the initial incision was made. From the time of the final anesthesia check to the time my son was delivered was seven minutes. He had to be resuscitated and was taken immediately to the NICU, or for those out there who don't know, the neonatal intensive care unit, where he stayed for three days. I got to hold him for the first time about seven and a half hours after he was born. I have a bicornate uterus, double cervix, and a vaginal septum. Um, And that's something, it's almost like she's got a heart-shaped sort of twin uterus um, in there all the way through to the vagina. Um, And that's something you can easily Google search if you want to see more about that. Um, And so she was planning to have C-sections only. Because of this, my husband and I are terrified of having any more biological children. I'm also studying to be a CNM, and I know I'll need to find a way to work through this because I can't even stand looking at my scar. It makes me think about having to be cut open. What are your thoughts on healing from birth trauma? Wow. That's, um,
1: thank you so much to the listener for sharing what must have been a really difficult memory that's that's very clear in her email. Uh, it's also impressive and exciting that you've decided to become a CNM, a midwife. Absolutely. We agree. It, it would be helpful for you to work through this so that you can be your best in your effort to support other folks that you'll be caring for. But I'd like to start. I want to start at the end of her story. Um, our bodies tell a story of who we are and remind us of what we've been through. But the scars also remind us of how strong we are and our capacity to overcome and prevail. So that kind of depends on how you how you look at it, really. Mm -hmm. Um, And as an aging star, superstar, (laughs) um, you know, you start to notice things about your body that you may not appreciate. And I have come to the conclusion that my body is it tells a story. If you don't care to look at my story or see my story, then you need to look away. Um, but I love it. I love it. I love all things about it. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that. A traumatic birth is defined as when an individual, a mother, father, or other witness believes the mother's or her baby's life was in danger or that a serious threat to the mother's or her baby's physical or emotional integrity existed during the labor and birth. According to Beck, and we'll talk about Beck in a moment, Beck et al., up to 45% of women feel as though they've had a traumatic birth experience. That's nearly half. About 4% of women experience post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. It doesn't just happen during war and other big, huge world tragedies. It happens to everyday folks, and in this case, to someone giving birth.
0: Absolutely. So, I mean, I think it's important to note, and I have said this before, um, birth is traumatic, period. It's traumatic to you. Your body is literally opening up and expelling (laughs) a person. Um, It's traumatic for babies. They're getting squeezed and pushed and in funky positions. And so sort of by definition, I think it is. And to say otherwise is doing a disservice to people who are birthing because – because it is, you have to know this is momentous, right? Um, But it shouldn't be necessarily, you know, upsetting, emotionally traumatic. And, you know, that that kind of thing, I think, is what stays with people. Um, Personally, with my uh, first birth, I felt that it was a bit traumatic myself. I had a really quick birth. We've we've talked about it before. Mm -hmm. And I still remember sort of the Mm -hmm. moment of birth when, um, you know, I could hear that they were listening to the baby's fetal heart rate and it was like in the 60s and you know any of us birth workers know that like thump thump Oof. thump and you know that that's not a good sound and so they were like come on you need we really need to give a good push and i gave a good push and while i was pushing they said stop pushing and they all started screaming at me to stop pushing because i was pushing too well um and i had a really bad tear and i'll never forget the look on my midwife's face when i looked down the bed and she looked horrified. Whoa. She just looked like like she was like white as a ghost holding pressure on my bottom. I was totally unmedicated, but you know, all the all the excitement had kind of numbed me and she was just like go get the doctor, go get the doctor. She kept saying his name and I was like, "Oh my god, it's really bad." You know, and I just remember feeling totally freaked and um and that that followed me a bit. So when I had my second child, I remember we've talked about this briefly and you guys can hear about our birth stories um in our first episode, but I recall with my second kind of going like, oh, man, I don't know if I could do this again because I was kind of remembering those memories. And actually, right at the time of birth, I refused to push him out because I was so traumatized Mm -hmm. by being told not to push and sort of doing the quote unquote wrong thing and Mm -hmm. harming myself that I just wouldn't push him out. And that poor baby had all kinds of petechiae all around his head from just being <laughs> squeezed by my vagina because I refused to push him out. But um, but yeah, I mean, even for me, I've I've pulled away from those, obviously. I've been able to attend to people's births and families, but um, I remember it, you know, and actually I, I get sort of like a compression in my chest when I think about it because it's it can be really scary.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, we've also talked about my first birth story um, and how it did involve trauma. And you can listen to an earlier episode about that. But um, the first baby, he had forceps. Mind you, I had no epidural anesthesia, that kind of thing. It was a forceps birth, shoulder dystocia, which means his shoulder got stuck. His clavicle was fractured so because that, that's how he got out. Um, a fourth degree laceration, which means that mm. I tore through my butt so that he could get out not on purpose not on anybody's purpose but it just happened I had a hemorrhage after he was born and because when you have a baby that weighs 11 pounds 4 ounces you have a hemorrhage and measures 23 inches his APGARs were 3, 7 and 9 which are not that's not so hot um, he spent the first 30 hours in the NICU and I couldn't even see him because I couldn't walk because I had a hole in my culo mm-hmm um, that that wasn't supposed to be there. Um, I sort of blocked the trauma, I have to say, until I was in labor the second time. Mm-hmm. And that happens too, too. You just don't think about it. Right. And some folks say that you get amnesia. And I, I didn't really feel like it was amnesia. I just thought that's not important. What's important is that I have a baby and I can't wait to do this again. And when I went into labor the second time, I was thought I remember thinking and saying out loud that having birthing babies is not a good idea. (laughs) Yeah. And and didn't we say we were gonna adopt? And and my then husband said, No, what are you talking about? You're delirious. And fortunately, the second baby was easy peasy. Said no one ever who had a human come out of (laughs) their hind parts. But it was much easier than the first time and there was no trauma and it was just really a like your imagined beautiful type birth and um that's something also to kind of think about that that if you are have been traumatized that the second go can be a nice go
0: healing definitely yeah Now, a lot of the recent research on birth trauma comes from Cheryl Tatano-Beck, who's DNSc, a D-N-S-C, C-N-M-F-A-A-N. So basically, she's got a bunch of titles, a bunch of stuff under her belt. She's actually a faculty member um, at UConn right now in their nursing school. And she's just well-published, awesome, distinguished researcher. Um, And in her research, we were able to pull a lot of information um, today. So we did reference her in our episode notes. Um, one important thing that she notes is that all birth trauma looks different to each person. Mm-hmm. Um, and no matter what it looks like, it is valid birth trauma if you perceive that it's there. So just because you as the you know birth attendant or the nurse or the support person were like, oh, that was great. You did a great job. Mm-hmm. That person might be shook inside. Something might have Upset them, and and that means that it it exists for sure. Um, And I think it's really important to note that we may only think of birth trauma and things like stillbirths or anesthetic failure, where people aren't numb, you know, starting surgeries, things like that. But it can be as simple as just having an unplanned C-section when you were planning, you know, a quote unquote natural birth. And again, if you want to hear what we think about natural birth, we have a whole episode on that too. (laughs) Um, Or you know, if you have a baby with an initially low APGAR score, those things, you of course can just trigger something and make people concerned.
1: Or a cesarean that didn't go as expected or planned like our li- listener experience. She knew she was having a cesarean, but she wasn't expecting it to be in in that sort of crazed and chaotic manner that it right. happened. Right. Um, I I just speaking of trauma an example of something that an issue that the birth in my perception that the birth was very beautiful is a patient had been told she was having um, a girl. And so she called me when her water broke. And um, I said to her, well, you're not contracting. The water's clear. The baby's moving. Why don't you just hang out at home for a while and call me back when things kind of pick up, when they start to, you know, sort of escalate. And she said, sure. She had no problem with that. She was comfortable. And she Started washing clothes, the baby's clothes. She hadn't washed the baby's clothes, which, you know, I'm so impressed that she washed baby's clothes because I'm going to fess up. I
0: didn't wash shit. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I just ripped tags (laughs) off with my teeth as I was, you know, as I was changing, changing, exploded pea soup diapers over the
1: baby's head. (laughs) Um, Listen, they lived. They're fine. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to worry about it. But she was washing all the baby's clothes. She gave birth. She had a really nice labor, as we would perceive. It was normal. There were no trauma. There was nothing concerning. And the baby came out, and um, and I said, oh, it's a boy. And she lost it because she was expecting a girl. Mm-hmm. And she was—it was It. it was really—that was a trauma for her because mm-hmm. she had been told that it was a girl— and she was expecting that she washed all the clothes that night before so now she had no boy clothes and the whole room was set up for a girl mm-hmm. and that was that was traumatic for her um she told me that she had problems bonding she didn't really want to hold the baby after he was born he was norm he was perfect mm-hmm. he was so adorable and perfect thankfully his dad was there and he kind of said I'll hold him I'll do it she was depressed postpartum she couldn't she said she had trouble nursing him because she didn't really connect with him because mm-hmm. that wasn't who she was expecting. And ultimately, when he was about,, mm, I don't know, maybe three months old, she got pregnant again mm-hmm. and had a girl. And she did, that wasn't in her power, but it just happened to be a girl. And she felt like, because she continued to be a GYN patient of mine, she felt like that fixed it. Mm-hmm. So you know, people's trauma comes in different forms. Um, it's really interesting. According to Beck, birth trauma can have a ripple effect, which brings me to Beck's research for mothers, including um, it can have an impact on breastfeeding, on subsequent childbirth and the anniversary of birth trauma. Uh, That particular patient also, even though she was told she was having a girl, just kept wanting every visit. Can I see again? Can I Mm -hmm. see again? And no, we don't do ultrasounds unnecessarily.
0: It's hard for me because I feel some type of way about that because I feel like Gendering a person before they can tell us what their gender is feels so wrong to me. Um, and, I agree and we I, never I, did it I, yeah. you know like until like the 90s yeah. pretty much like you didn't know like my my mom didn't know with any of us I mean I don't know about no, you but I like, knew
1: nothing yeah. until people showed up you're
0: like it's a baby <laughs> like right. I don't you know and I I feel like we should be doing surveillance but I don't know that's so hard because people do really seriously mourn yes. it's like they lost someone right. if they were expecting it to be different or if they you know got a surprise because guess what even our best testing our self-refeedal DNA is not perfect. perfect No, nothing. And, is 100%. Um, and who knows and then you're going to mourn that anyway if your kid is four and is like hey guess what I'm a girl you know and and, and even though I have a penis I'm a girl right. you know and so I don't know sorry uh, no, this I, is off topic but no, it's like it, it just actually isn't. it's hard I,
1: for me it's part of what we do the intersection <laughs> yeah. of discussion of intersection that we do and I think that you're right and I think that it's really important and I did not know what and I applaud my patients who say, I don't know. And mm-hmm. I say, well, you're having a surprise mm-hmm. um, because I did not know. And that doesn't mean you have to do what I do, but I just feel like it's all a setup. Yeah. It, it's set up for a letdown sometimes.
0: <laughs> you're just going to have your baby. Right. And, and And if they're everything's great, like, that's great. You guys are going to learn from each other. You're going to learn to know them, you know, whoever they are.
1: Um. So this ripple effect can impact breastfeeding, And subsequent birth and the anniversary on the birth trauma, that's happening every birthday. You're kind of thinking about what you went through. Mm -hmm. There can be difficulties with infant bonding and an increased risk of um, postpartum anxiety and depression, just like my patient had. And while the impact on the mother or birth person is the main focus here, fathers and clinicians who are present at traumatic births can also experience a secondary traumatic stress. The midwife who caught my first son... Never let me forget how that birth traumatized her and Mm -hmm. how that was the worst dystocia she'd ever had. And she'd like would tell people at we were friends socially. She would tell people at dinner parties. And and I was like, could you just stop talking about (laughs) that? But she was traumatized.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. The whole the anniversary of the birth trauma, hearing that, I remember thinking as I first was reading through the research, like, oh, that's the baby's birthday. And it's supposed to be this day to celebrate the baby and celebrate the year of what happened. But I can't imagine how upsetting that is. That would be like the anniversary of the time you were assaulted. You know what I mean? It's like every or, you know, if something awful happened to you on Christmas and every Christmas or whatever, you have to relive it. I mean, and that must be so difficult to balance, you know, being, loving and supporting of your child and also working through what you went through. And so I think that's why it's important that we do work through these things. Um, you know, additionally, no one is asking the mother on a child's birthday how they're doing or right. how they are. And even after the baby comes, a lot of times, you know, you go to see the the baby, not right. the mom. And right. and we've talked about this. We did a microsode yeah. where we talked about the importance of, you know, focusing on the the birther um when Someone's had a child, but something I learned from PR, which I love, and I've been carrying along with me for probably the last five years or so, and even my children, um, you know, experience this, is that we should be celebrating the mother, um, or you know, the birther on the day of their child's birth. Happy birthing day is something that uh, yes. I've always heard PR say, and that her babies say to her, and. We've sort of adopted that, too. I say that to my own mother. I like to get my my mother something on my birthday. I
1: always give my mother a gift on my yep. birthday.
0: And um, and even this year, my oldest turned eight. And when I came in from work, I had worked a night uh, a call shift the night before. I walked up the stairs and he said, happy birthing day, mama. And no. I just thought like, oh, it's so beautiful. So remember that we need to be checking in um with people, see how they're doing. They're a huge part of this, right? Give them a chance to share because they're the star, really. This is what happened. If they want to relive their birth, whatever, glory, stress, like let them.
1: Absolutely. Um, In subsequent births, patients may find another pregnancy to be full of anxiety, panic, and wondering if the next birth, is it going to be more trauma or will it be healing? In my case, it was more healing because it was so delightful. In um, other cases, it can just be really traumatic as in your situation where you were just really afraid. And it's important that, you know, you patients, clients feel like um, they can discuss what happened, you know, like what's going to be, what are the expectations? What's leading up to the birth? What's going to be happening? um, What do you hope to accomplish this time, especially if you've had birth trauma? Right. And I often tell patients, you're not asking for the unreasonable because you want to have something the way you expect and you have in your mind. Mm -hmm. But let's just talk about why you are in that place and why, um, you know, you sort of are fearful of the adventure, right? Because that's kind of what it is. It's an adventure. You don't know what's going to come forth. And I also tell them, listen, you're not a seahorse. Of course, you're not a male unless you're trans, but... um, seahorses, I've talked about this before, they like spit uh, like a thousand babies out at once, Mm -hmm. little seahorses in the water. And I tell them, you don't get that many chances. And so each experience is really important. Even if you have 10 babies, it's still each one is important to you and how it turns out. And it should be how you want it to be
0: to the best of
1: our ability and yours to sort of come through that. And I
0: think I just have to say um, for birth workers out there, nurses, um, midwives, doctors, whoever, you need to really resist the urge to label this person as annoying, a troublemaker, like a pain. Oh, look at what they gave us this letter. Let's show it to every single person on the floor and laugh about it because that is messed up. Birth plans. Right. And I mean, really, just because someone is asking you to do something that really is within your scope of your job, but it may make things a little bit trickier. It's not appropriate to you know, be teasing them or talking about them. You know, you need to be supporting them. We need to be setting realistic expectations for patients, but also doing our best. And sometimes that might mean within the best of your ability, giving a little extra. Like I recall I had a patient who had a traumatic birth, crash C-section, the baby did not survive, mm. um, and she got pregnant again within the next year with twins. And so she was having another C section, a planned C section. Twins already can be problematic, right. so we, you know, sort of worked through her entire, you know, pregnancy talking about what was going to happen. And she asked me to be there when she had her C section, and um, and I did. I had to stay extra after I'd worked a night shift, but. For me and for also the doctor who did the C-section, who was the one who did the C-section where her baby did not survive, uh, it was kind of healing for all of us. Mm-hmm. We got to go through it together. We got to work through it. I got to be there with her and we cried and I helped her hold her babies. And I mean, it's just, and for me, I needed to do that for myself. I think same thing with her surgeon. I think for all of us, we needed to kind of go through it again and see that things could be okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it was extra work. It was something that I didn't get, you know paid for. And, you know, I right, was I was right. having to stay after I worked a 24 hour call. But but it was important to her. It was important to me. And I think sometimes if you have the ability to do a little extra, a little something right, to it, you know, it's, a,
1: it's an investment that you get a big return on, especially in the healing process that you got to be with her when she was successful yeah. with her twins and, um, yeah. and the surgeon and so forth. I still remember my first shoulder dystocia mm-hmm. like and um, I, I still remember I see the patient's face mm-hmm. and all the people running in the room and and my, so a
0: shoulder dystocia is
1: a shoulder dystocia that's a good question is just like I described for my own son uh, when the baby's head comes out but the shoulders are either really too wide or in a p- odd position that they're not following the head. And so they're
0: stuck. We've talked about with birth how babies do a lot of work on their own. They do something called the cardinal movements. And so there's um, a bunch of rotations and things they need to do. And sometimes if they're unable to do those, um, it's difficult to deliver the baby.
1: And so um, I still remember that happening and uh, the patient and all that went through. And, you know, I remember some slow starts, which slow Mm -hmm. starts are when the baby comes out. And it kind of sort of is deciding do i want to be on this planet or do i want to just go back to where i came from and so you can't you're not getting them to cry and sort of breathe and color up and stuff like that resuscitations they all bring back that twitchy they make me twitch mm. if i think a baby's going to get stuck that provokes lots of anxiety uh-huh. in me i make preparations for it and i we do simulations all the time at the hospital and so we're trained to cope with it But it still makes me sort of do you have all the equipment in the room? Do you have, you know, I'm just going through the steps in my head because it's it just makes me twitchy.
0: Yeah, I still remember my first sort of difficult birth as a nurse where I was the nurse for the patient. We had a wonderful night together, like really bonded. She was pushing um, babies. Heart rate seemed fine throughout, um, and then right sort of towards the end, which sometimes happens, um, the baby just wasn't coping as well. But she was very close to delivery, mm-hmm. so the clinician was there, and the baby came out. But the baby came out just with sort of none of that drive, no, mm-hmm. no cry, not great perfusion. So a little, a little blue, a little purpley, which again can happen. Right. But um, within the first minute, this baby was not coming around, and that's sort of the time that we give the baby to transition. Um, and I still remember because the doctor was freaking out, and I was Ooh. the nurse, and so the doctor was screaming like for help and. Ooh. And I remember having to start all the resuscitative process for the baby, and it was because we're
1: trained to do that
0: also right that's
1: not a joke that's a serious thing
0: right right I'm laughing just because it's uncomfortable to right. think about sure. how stressful sure, it sure. was and uh yeah and it it was it was truly traumatizing to me I mean after it was all said and done I went in the hallway and I just sobbed oh. like I just totally cried and I was leaving for a vacation to Ireland the next day and I remember I was so worried about the baby and before I had even left um my sister is a NICU nurse and I was like I was like can you just tell me, is that baby okay? And she's like, the baby's fine. And the parents, and I actually have a little bit of guilt about this, but the parents came and found me about a month later when the baby was getting discharged home. And mm. the mom came and found me and said, I just need you to know, like, this baby's okay. Mm. This baby's coming home with me. And you helped do that. You mm-hmm. kept this baby alive for the first, you know, minute wow. until there was help there. And, and, and you did good. And I didn't, you know, she didn't need to do that. This was her... Trauma, but clearly she saw that I went through some kind of secondary trauma. And I will never forget that because it meant so much to me. And then years later, um, when I was going to midwifery school, another nurse who I guess was friends with her outside said, you know, one of my friends was talking about her birth story and she was talking about her incredible nurse and it was you and oh. it was this it was this patient. So I think, I think it just says something about how important, you don't realize how impactful your small actions can be. And so being able to talk with people, being able to go through these things mm-hmm. can make a huge difference. And we're going to talk about that um, in a little bit when we talk Here about the prevention, but should we take a quick break? Yeah, why don't we do that? Hey guys, it's Chelsea. And it's Ashlyn. And we are the hosts of Will There, there Be Tequila? Tequila? Ooh, we did it on point! <laughs> <laughs> so it's a show where we talk about things that are going on in our lives and the world around us because you know the world's on fire and all that fun stuff. And we also have a little shot on the side. <laughs> so
1: yeah, be sure to check us out every Tuesday wherever you listen to your pods. So Apple Music, Spotify, SoundCloud. Literally anywhere. Drink responsibly.
0: Okay. And we are back with the midwife crisis. Today, we are talking about trauma in childbirth. And so again, if you um, had taken a little break and you've forgotten, we just want to give a little bit of a trigger warning for anyone who may be suffering with their own traumatic childbirth that we're going to talk about some things that might make you feel a little bit uncomfortable in some kind of way. And so that's our little warning. So when we're talking about traumatic births, You know, we're talking about sort of how this is what happens after the situation is perceived by the person, but we haven't really talked a lot about preventing them. And Mm -hmm. I think there are some things that we can do to try to set people up to have a good experience. Um, And so some risk factors that we can look at in patients prior to pregnancy, such as mental health disorders or prior trauma, especially sexual assaults, Um. Some poor quality of provider interactions. Um, So if the patient, you know, comes in with you and says, listen, I saw your partner and I was really upset because of X, Mm -hmm. Y, and Z. Those are all things that you can address before the birth. You can talk with the patient. Mm -hmm. You can discuss what what upset them or what things they're anticipating or, you know, if they have a prior trauma, what that was like and what you can do, what they think you can do to try to make it better. And as a patient, if you are not jiving with your care provider or you have something that bothers you about an interaction or something you've overheard or something that went on, you must speak up. And if you're not taken seriously, you must find a new provider. I don't care if you're 37 weeks, like you need to find some place where you feel safe.
1: Because you are not a seahorse. Exactly. And so it, this is important. Um, and in doing part of that prevention can also be education. So childbirth preparation is important. And in, in it, including having it cover the good, the bad, and the ugly. So you can just sort of have a notion of what could possibly happen. Not all bad, but you're expecting good, but just to be prepared and to understand. I think that that's really important.
0: And I think it's important to note that there are some really wonderful childbirth education programs that focus on like the normal. And mm-hmm. and again, we talked about this and we talked with our mm-hmm. natural childbirth episode, but they'll say things like your body is meant to do this. And like, mm-hmm. it's going to be, f- you know, everything's going to work out because it has to and that kind of thing. And I think, that can sometimes be damaging because then when things don't work out that way or or your it's body didn't do, right. You
1: feel that you're a failure.
0: Exactly that. And so I tend to, you know, I taught childbirth education. I think PR did so as did well. Mm-hmm. And when I taught, I made sure that I told people, yes, 99% of the time, it's normal. Your body's going to know what to do. It's going to be great, blah, blah, blah. But also there is a possibility that not everything will be perfect. And here are some of those things you might expect. And I would go over, internal monitoring or mm-hmm. you know what to, what happens if the you know fluid's not clear or c sections and what the difference between an emergency section and a planned c section and and different types of anesthesia and all different kinds of things because even though it's scary you need to know because i think knowledge is power
1: for sure and you can't if you don't have that knowledge it's really difficult to participate in shared decision making and right. that is so you're, we're not doing things to you. Mm-hmm. We're working with you to try to get a healthy mom and baby and to get um, a, a hopefully a positive outcome. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, your provider should be explaining risks, benefits, alternatives to whatever it is that's being presented. Some of that you can learn in childbirth education so that when it is presented to you, you understand what's, what folks are talking about. Um, interventions identified by Beck as helpful for prevention of developing significant birth trauma stress include postnatal debriefing. So that's after you have the baby, having someone, this is the most important, having one of the key players in or your birthers come and talk to you to process the experience, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Mm-hmm. And so who attended your birth, ha- have them come and sort of explain this is what happened I review the details of the birth after mom is settled and it's a brief process but even on a on a perfectly straight ahead textbook normal type birth i Mm -hmm. still go over what was happening when she was pushing because it's almost like an out-of-body experience so you're there but you're kind of "Mm, was i really Mm -hmm. and so i talk about when the head came out when the baby came out and so on and so forth because they're going to retell that story, and it's like, right. let's all be on the same page. Not that it's – and I don't know what was traumatic for her. Mm-hmm. Maybe she thought her husband's screaming, the head is purple. Well, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's supposed to be until the baby comes out and starts breathing. Right. Right. And so covering that kind of stuff, because that could be traumatizing to her, and then you can clear some of that up for her. Mm-hmm. So I think it's really um, – it's important to do that. Perception is her reality, but sometimes reality, it can be two sides of the same event. And so that's why I think it's important to kind of discuss it. And if she says, oh no, that's not what happened, I'm really, then you can kind of go over what was, happened and why, what was appropriate, what wasn't. Yeah,
0: and we're not saying you're trying to change her, you know, No, 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 absolutely not. We're saying like clarification. Absolutely not. Yeah. it's just a good idea
1: to circle back. Mm -hmm. And and, uh, even if the patient and the family seem fine and ask if they have questions, if they have, um, you know, if they want to review the events and that kind of thing. Um, Like for example, shoulder dystocia, the mother may say they jumped on my belly, like a hundred people came in the room and one Mm -hmm. of them jumped, stood on a stool and jumped on my belly. Mm -hmm. When what they were actually doing is, is giving super pubic like on your pubic bone, putting pressure to try and flatten it so that the baby's shoulder can kind of um, squeeze, get clear itself, and, right. and come out. And so that's something that's easily cleared. No one was not to make her feel like she doesn't understand anything, but just sort of say this is what we were trying to do because it was important to help your baby exit.
0: Right, right. And I think um, in those situations, if you've ever been in a shoulder dystocia, you you know probably that they can be a little traumatizing, I'm sure, because they're loud and people come in and all Mm -hmm. of a sudden there's always people here and they're, you know, talking over each other and we try not to make it be chaotic, Mm -hmm. but sometimes it is. And I think, you know, as a birth worker, if you heard someone say they pushed on my belly. What are you thinking? Cuz in my head I'm thinking, "Oh, that almost sounds like they did what's called fundal pressure, yeah. which we don't do right. because it can cause a shoulder dystocia." Exactly. And so clarifying with the patient within that, you know, initial time frame that you were actually doing suprapubic pressure to yes. release a, sh- a shoulder Is a big difference. Um, And so I think it's important that, again, we empower people with the knowledge. And I always tell people as well, you should know everything that's gone on to your body. And if you don't know, like like when people come in for the GYN exam and they're like, I think I had a pap neck last year. I'm like, no, ma'am, you (laughs) need to know because this is your body and your health and you are your own advocate. So like we need to be making sure that people really understand. I do tell them, I want you
1: to know what I know. And typically when I know it. Mm -hmm. And so that's why there's a time when we're not talking about that. And that's why I circle back and say, let's let me bring you back to where we all are. And uh, as Kate said, we're not trying to change your your notion of the whole thing just to sort of let's all I should know more about you than, you know, right, about your body. I don't care if I'm looking inside and you can't see inside. You have a right to know all the details of what I see and what I'm doing.
0: And that being said. I think it just needs to be at least offered and explained if they are tolerant of it. Because I also have people who are like, just do it. I don't want to know. I don't want to hear. You know, sometimes I'll hand people the mirror and say, I just want you to see where I, and they're like, no, no, no. (laughs) And so, and that's fine too, of course, because, you know, it's up to the patient. But, um, you know, if they want to be empowered, let's allow them. Something that can be really helpful as well is expressive writing. Journaling Mm -hmm. um, and just working through your feelings. So getting everything down on paper, you know, going through it, trying to see what you remember, what you don't, maybe talking with people who are there, filling in the blanks, sort of making the narrative for you so that then you can work through it and see and pull out which pieces were the pieces that that were most upsetting. Right. You know, For me, as I said with mine, it was everyone going, don't push, don't push, don't push. And I just remember that because I just kept thinking, oh, my gosh, I did this to myself. Mm. They told me not to push, and I was a naughty Mm. patient, (laughs) and I couldn't. you know. But anyone who's had a baby knows you can't stop that. And so having to work through that and work through that language Mm -hmm. um, was really big for me. Uh, Another thing, and we'll talk about it till the cows come home, is um, cognitive behavioral therapy, a.k.a therapy. Um, and this Yay. can be brief. You know, not everyone needs therapy that they do for years and years and years. Some people who like have, us, right, exactly. <laughs> not like us girls. Um, some people have just distinct sort of traumas that they need to work through. And so maybe brief cognitive intervention, six, 12 weeks. Um, and guess what? We have it now online. Yes, queen. Yeah. We have talk space. We have better help. Almost every therapist that you can go to their office offers telehealth as well. Exactly. And so as long as um, our insurance companies keep paying for it, please universe, let that happen because it's so helpful for people. When someone has a newborn baby and they had a fourth degree tear and they can't get off their butt and sit in the car to drive there, you know, to allow them to be able to talk to you on the computer, on your phone is such a gift. And and you shouldn't be scared to use it because talking through it, you may not even realize what you need to say or what you need to hear.
1: Sometimes uh, talking through it is a form of self healing Mm -hmm. it's um you you're going to a therapist you're thinking that person's going to help you but in essence you are really doing the work yeah and you're helping yourself um i think it's helpful to consider a postpartum doula to consider a doula uh, uh, intrapartum Mm -hmm. like while you are giving to assist you when you're giving birth to help advocate for you especially if you have a partner who um it knows you and is into you, but may not be well versed in and um, sort of opening up and advocating for what you guys have kind of thought about and and would like. Doula's are super helpful. Um, so we also we're going to talk about. We're not going to talk about this in depth, but there are nine um, stages, instinctive stages of the infant during the first hour after birth, and so we put baby skin to skin with mom in the first hour. For many reasons, there, there are many, many reasons in these nine stages for doing that, because it, um, it sort of facilitates bonding, it facilitates breastfeeding, it facilitates a lot of things. It, imagine, Felipe was taken, that was my first son, he was taken away from me, like right away, mm-hmm. and I didn't see him for 30 hours because I couldn't walk. And Max was taken away from you, and they yeah. both were taken to the newborn uh, special care and so um, to the NICU. And so um, that whole experience the second time when I had a baby placed on my chest was like magical. Yeah. It was magical. And I I did not not bond with Felipe, mm-hmm. but it was like, oh, this is like in the video.
0: Yeah. I will say for clarification purposes, Max did stay with me initially, but then they took him away because he was cold, which is a practice that we don't really do now. Now right. we will bring the warmer into the room right. if we feel that the baby needs a little additional, you know, exogenous warmth. But um, in my case, he was taken away. And I remember after like an hour or so being like, where is my baby? Like, I started thinking think I was going crazy. Like, yeah. did I even have a baby? Am I making right. this up? You know? It's, oh, come on. <laughs> right? That's what I thought, too. It's bananas. Yeah,
1: it is bananas. Um, and the, so these stages are, you know, the birth cry, the first stage, you know, when everybody wants to hear the baby cry, that, mm-hmm. like, generates applause yep. and the baby starts to breathe and then there's sort of the relaxation stage and the newborn doesn't really do much the hands are relaxed and it's just sort of getting used to the planet basically um and the the birth cry is kind of stopped and the baby's skin to skin and covered with a blanket and you're taking pictures and all uh, that that's not part of the phase but that's what your stage that's what the parents are doing Um, And then there's kind of an awakening, and all of this is happening really rapidly. Mm -hmm. Um, The newborn kind of um, exhibits small thrusts of movement in the head and shoulders and kind of preparing themselves in the few minutes after birth for what's going to happen next, um, where they kind of start moving their mouth and maybe even showing some interest in in nursing and starting to root and... um, rooting. Do you want to talk about rooting real quick? Sure. So
0: rooting, if you've ever touched like a cheek of a baby and they turn their head towards it. So rooting is this natural instinct that they're born with where um, they find the breast, they find the nipple. Um, it's like magic. It's like magic. Yep. Um,
1: so the baby may rest at any point, And you can have periods of rest and activity throughout those first that first hour. And the next stage is called crawling, but the baby doesn't start crawling. But they Studies have been done that if you put a baby on a mom's, on the chest Mm -hmm. of the birther, um, they will find, work their way to the nipple, to the breast. They will, especially if there's any milk that's expressed, they will work their way up there without you even lifting them per se. And so uh, it's just fascinating how humans have evolved. This stage um, begins about half hour after giving birth. Mm -hmm. And then there's familiarization. Um, They lick the nipple. And and I always tell patients, even if they aren't latching, just let them sort of um, get used to it and and lick and play with it, just mm-hmm. so they can kind of get a notion of what's going on, and it gets your body ready for what's about to happen.
0: Yep, and a lot of times what you'll see um, infants do as well is they'll sort of stick their own fist just, into mm-hmm. their mouth and face and kind of suckle on it, but that's because um, the amniotic fluid actually gives off a similar scent as mm-hmm. the chest and and breast and nipple, right. and so um, it helps the bait It's like a it's like a hound dog. You know, it's yeah. like it's like you, they get a little scent and now they can kind of follow it to where they're going to get some food.
1: Oh, my goodness. Even just thinking about this makes me so I just get like a little endorphin. Rush. I get like
0: phantom letdown. <laughs> you ever get that like little zing oh, yeah. down like your your boobs? I'm like, whoa. Um
1: And it can take more time if mom has had analgesia anesthesia during labor, mm-hmm. more time you may need more time with the skin to skin and to get the baby to start suckling and stuff like that and that's not wrong it's not wrong or right it just is it's okay right it's just your experience and the final stage is sleep and the baby um and sometimes mother too fall yeah. into a restful sleep and they sort of sleep for about an one and a half two hours after birth so in that first hour you try to go you kind of you don't try to. These stages occur pretty naturally. Mm-hmm. And you try to get babies sort of um, onto the breast or the chest
0: uh, just just for a sample. And even if the person is not intending to breastfeed, they can absolutely still do skin to skin and kind of go through all these stages because there's still evidence to show that it helps the baby stabilize their vital signs yes. and you know it helps them regulate the their body temperature. temperature and keep their blood sugar up so that even if even if their intention is not to um, to nurse the baby directly from the breast or chest, which we're never going to force that on anyone, right? Um, they should still offer that and even let's say it was a um, surrogate pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Um, You know the the parents can do skin to skin or right. the um, support person can do skin to skin with a baby. You're still going to get right. some of that good benefit from it. And I think the biggest point of this is even in a traumatic birth experience, just like how PR said, you know, even though the patient didn't want to hold her baby, she had the partner do it and then yes. eventually tried to get the mom to do it because it's helpful for everyone in this, in this bonding stage. And even in a C-section, we really need to try to encourage, you know, the staff as the much as we to can skin, to try yeah. to get the baby skin to skin, even if it's just the support person holding the baby cheek to cheek with the right. mom, there's there's something there or, you know, the birther to have that, that interaction, to have that interaction with its parents so that we right. can start this bonding process. And
1: that can occur with um, the birth um, support person. Mm-hmm. It, you know, like if you can't do it in the C-section, but the person who's there supporting you, be it the, your partner, they can... Um, they can do it skin to skin. And absolutely. so the baby still gets skin to skin. It's not a right or a wrong. And ho- no one cares if it's a hairy chest. <laughs> um, just, the baby doesn't know. The baby doesn't even know what hair is. So,
0: and, Pro- and we already talked about hair in our last episode. We don't care. We're not going to judge. <laughs> no, absolutely <laughs> not. So one um, possible positive outcome that can come from uh, traumatic births is something called post-traumatic growth. I mean, and this is not just in births. It's anyone who has a post-traumatic episode or instance. So basically what this means is that individuals um, are able to surpass and kind of work through in some part of their lives what was present um, before their struggle with the trauma. Um, And so they're kind of not getting rid of the trauma altogether. It's not that it goes away, but they're able to learn how to sort of live with it. Mm -hmm. You know, so as many people will say, they're not getting over it. They're working through Through it. it. Yeah. Um, And this growth consists of five dimensions and people may not have all of them, but they may have some, which an appreciation of life, learning to relate to others, personal strengths, um, new possibilities and spiritual change. And Mm. so- these are all things, if you th- can think of anyone who's had any kind of trauma in their lives, many times if they're able to have some kind of positive outcome, it will be some or one of these you know, pieces where people, again, are learning to appreciate things or look at things in a new way or you know, figure out new meaning for right. what their life is like and for. Um, we wouldn't be us if we didn't
1: um, cover a little of our intersectional work. And so I'm just going to, quickly talk about um the black latinx community um we're not monolithic so what i'm speaking are examples and there are many many more that Mm -hmm. um that we will not cover and can't always cover but i think it's important just to to raise it up you know trauma happens to us good that results in good things and not good things um And if we're not medically inclined, we tend to believe that's how things are supposed to be. Mm -hmm. And so um, we may, I feel like as people of color, we're not always, we don't always feel empowered to question the process. And that's why I said doulas can be helpful because they know when to question the process and when to support the process. And it's also helpful if you're, if you have a doula who looks like you, Mm -hmm. Um, when you're in the um, population of color. And so or or just even birth providers that look like you in some aspect or another. It, and so um, that's really helpful. Language barriers. That seems like it's pretty obvious, but uh, that's a
0: huge one.
1: It is super huge. And even with interpreter services and all of that, it's not quite the same is when you have someone who's speaking your same language. Mm -hmm. And I witness that all the time because, you know, I'm bilingual, so I can um, speak with the Spanish patients just as well as the English. But also when I witness our providers at the hospital who are Arabic speaking, Mm -hmm. and just the mom uh, is so thrilled to be able to Mm -hmm. have someone understand Mm -hmm. Sometimes the interpreter services will be a male if they're Arabic speaking, often they're Muslim. And Mm -hmm. so that doesn't sort of jive with having a male involved in their process and all of that stuff. So language barriers, are they matter. Um, The midwife who attended my first birth never came back to review the birth experience with me and its inherent trauma. And I'm not sure... um, I don't think that that had to do with my color. Mm-hmm. She just didn't. I think it had to do with her. But I think it had to do with her thinking it it, it didn't matter. Mm-hmm. It was okay. and That she could just walk away, and when she saw me six weeks later, it would be all right. Um, and I think often uh, people of color aren't listened to anyway mm-hmm. by the medical community. There are all kinds of biases and thoughts and suspicions, and they're strong, and they don't need pain meds, or, meds or they're drug-seeking, and they... Don't need it, but they want it, or there are all kinds of things. There are all kinds of ill assumptions Mm -hmm. about um, my community. And we've talked about those disparities. We have, we have. And don't, and if you, and another layer on that distasteful cake is if you are um, a person of color and also in the LGBTQIA community. Mm -hmm. And so that is, is just. Yeah, Even worse.
0: Yeah. I mean, well, and that sort of pops into, of course, what I'm going to just mention briefly is, um, you know, again, I also am not speaking for everyone, but when I'm looking at some of the information, same kind of things, different sort of outlook, right? Mm-hmm. So um, in the LGBTQIA plus community, there can often be a fear of being misgendered. You know, if you're a non-binary or you're um, a trans male having a, a baby, you mm-hmm. know, being a birther, then it is so easy for someone to, you know, name you, say she or her Mm -hmm. or mom or mom and dad Mm -hmm. and all these like heteronormative wordage and verbiage that we tend to use. I had a patient who I labored with all day. The patient and her wife ended up in a C-section. We're back in the C-section. The patient's all ready. And someone goes, can you go get dad? (laughs) It was the nurse. And I was like, you've been with this patient for 10 hours and you're going to say right now, can you go get dad? And guess what? This uh, patient on the table, she is awake. She fully heard that you just said that. Like, what is happening? It doesn't it doesn't take a lot to pay attention. And and she didn't correct herself, which, you know, I really think it was she was not being um, malicious. But when we do make those mistakes, we need to correct them. We need to bother to correct them and not be asking for forgiveness but just moving on from it
1: we must always consider in that your intent the impact of what you and mm-hmm. you she didn't intend anything she just was going through the motions but the impact of what she did and said it, it was it's lasting that's something that those people will remember hearing yeah. about their birth experience and so
0: yeah As well as, uh, you know, some patients, especially in the trans and non-binary community, again, may have a difficult relationship with their birth sex organs. Mm. So things like vagina, vulva, Mm -hmm. uterus, breast, you Mm -hmm. know, we need to do our best to again, communicate with these patients, say, what are you comfortable with? Are you comfortable with me saying this? Are you, you know, how how would you like me to refer to it? And that's why we try to change the verbiage. And, and, you know, PR and I have tried a little bit when we're talking about things like the birth crawl and everything to chest feeding, breastfeeding, you know, um, providing the baby with you know, milk, mother's milk, whatever. We shouldn't Mm -hmm. say mother's milk, I guess. But, you know, like we're trying to be inclusive in our language. And I think that that will go a long way, especially if you just say to the person, hey, I want to be inclusive with you. How would you like me to do this? And again, that talks to a little bit about letting yourself be a little uncomfortable so that they don't have to be. Um,
1: And and the same thing applies to people of color and people of different cultures. Um, If you just take a couple of minutes and just what are your expectations? Mm -hmm. Can you meet them? Mm-hmm. And some of that involves being uncomfortable mm-hmm. as the as the provider. But so what? Isn't yeah. that what you're supposed to be there for? Yeah. You're, and
0: you're again, sure. I think similar to the black community, uh, LGBTQIA plus uh, patients may have an increased likelihood of having previous trauma, anxieties, depression, mental health disorders because just inherently existing as um, what they are as someone who is maybe not the quote unquote norm is traumatic every day. <laughs> so you're yeah, presenting with with this already, and then we're just loading on top of it. Um, and so I think it's important to consider all of those things. Yeah, it's a
1: lot. It really is a lot. And so we appreciate the listener um, bringing up this birth trauma, her own birth trauma, and we hope that um, her emailing us is, is part of her he- beginning her healing mm-hmm. and that listening to this will also help in... Um, in some way, um, we're trying to salve the wound. Like when, you know, old people, they say, put some salve on it and help it heal the wound of birth trauma. And we are offering some suggestions for starting the healing process. This isn't comprehensive, of course. And it isn't a quick fix, but mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be a lifelong burden, especially if you can act, have it, the processing help you lead to growth. Yep. And understanding and
0: healing. Yep. And your journey may not look the same as everyone else's, but that doesn't mean that it's not totally valid.
1: For sure. Well, we'd like to thank Bale Bob Tree Studios, Kenny Blackwell, our friends, family, and all of you who make this podcast possible and motivate us to continue to do it.
0: Please be sure to subscribe and like us on Spotify, iTunes, iHeartRadio, Google Play, wherever you listen. Like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at The Midwife Crisis Podcast or email us at midwifecrisispodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, don't be afraid to share what you're going through.
1: And in the end, we can have beautiful scars.